coming up next on Inside Golf Podcast, Scottish Open preview, and a lot of my thoughts on live. But before we get to that, we are presented as always by RickRunGoods.com. All of the stats, tools, and info that I will be referencing throughout the podcast can be found at RickRunGoods.com. All of my written work. Anytime you want to access me for questions, you can find me in that Slack channel. You can find all that on rickrungids.com, promo code Andy. That is the important part. We'd love to have you as part of the team. Open championship right around the quarter. It's a great time to sign up. All right, it's good to be back. This is my first podcast since Tuesday of Travelers Week. I've been traveling a bunch. I'm back in New York. I went to a wedding in Rhode Island. Shout out Max and Alexandra. That was phenomenal. Uh, and then I flew to Chicago for a couple of days. Got to play some really great courses over there. Was hosted uh, by a guy that I actually met through the podcast. Shout out Ryan Feeney, who was incredibly generous uh, to invite me to play Chicago Highlands, which I was pretty blown away by, honestly. It's a newer golf course. I'm not sure a ton of people know about it yet, um, but I want to give it a, a real shout out here. Um because I, it has really, really interesting greens. And um, it's really, I guess, the style of golf that I respond to the most, which is, I guess, more of a lengthy style. Um, and I just had an absolute blast there. And then Butler obviously delivered. Uh, I mean, along with Shadow Creek, it is probably regarded as Fazio's best work, at least by our friends over at Golf Digest. And... You guys know I'm pretty tough on the Foz. Uh, but he deserves a lot of credit for this one. It is a tough, tough golf course. Probably pound for pound. Maybe the hardest golf course I've ever played outside of Shinnecock. Um, I mean, the joke is with Butler that if the USGA called them and said, we want to host a U.S. Open tomorrow, they would be ready to go. And the golf course wouldn't have to change at all. Of course, they're not going to host a U.S. Open because they're a men's only club. And they're pretty firm on that. Um, but what a, what a, what a test of golf. Um, that course kicked my butt. Um, but again, like just like a Bethpage Black or Shinnecock, which are kind of like the two other super, super hard courses that kind of come to mind that I've played, it wasn't unfair Good shots were still rewarded. The bad ones were just really penalized. So, you know, the margins are so slim there, and you can just get going in the wrong direction really quickly if you aren't careful. But overall, it was an awesome trip. I feel recharged. I feel refreshed. And I'm ready to dive into this final great stretch of golf. Before we get to the Scottish, you know, a lot has happened in the world of golf since I last did a podcast. And I've been thinking a lot about the live stuff. I mean, it's hard not to be, right? And there were a couple things that I've been stewing on that I kind of wanted to expand on because, you know, I think there's a lot of meat on this bone. So there's some stuff I wanted to say, and here's where I want to start. So... The rampant speculation stuff with the players, the rumor mill, you know, the 
deep dive analysis that we're kind of all doing now with the, is this guy going to go? Is this guy going to go? Well, this guy said this, so that means he's going to go. I think it's like honestly turned into a bit of a, a bet at this point. Um, like the amount of people that suddenly out of the blue have all these well-sourced connections on these guys and on live. That's why we've been joking about it a bunch. Uh, and they're so confident that they know what these players are going to do. I don't think most of the players themselves know what they're going to do. Um, I've heard a bunch of stuff too. I don't feel remotely comfortable sharing any of that stuff on Twitter like everyone else, because most of it, I'm not sure if it's actually true. It's from he said, she said stuff, right? And again, as Brooks has shown us, these guys are completely liable to do a 180 and change their opinion. The only guy that I felt comfortable speaking on was Xander because that information was coming directly from people in his camp. It wasn't some third-party random source or some random guy in my DMs. Um, and even with Xander, you know, the guy puts out a statement and people are like, yeah, he's still going to live. <laughs> like the statement wasn't firm enough. He's still going to live. And what I would say to that is, listen, these guys are all coming to terms with the fact that they don't have any control of what anyone else is going to do and that this could escalate and get out of hand pretty quickly. Some would probably say it already has. I know definitively that Xander wants to stay on the PGA Tour. I can report that confidently. But he also understands, hey, I can't control what the other guys are going to do. And if all the other guys go, which they could, I don't want to be left with my dick in my hand getting the same heat that Brooks and DJ did for going back on their word. So to me, unless you're Rory and the tour might be named after you in five years, I don't really see the upside for a lot of these guys in taking a hard stance right now with where the climate is. I think you're just setting yourself up to potentially look really stupid um, if players that aren't in your control start to go and other dominoes, dominoes start to fall. Um, and that's just the reality of it. Like I think the dumbest takes were, oh, if Cantlay is going, which we don't even know if he is, that means Xander is going, what are you talking about? Listen to the Homa interview. His best friend on tour is Taylor Gooch. And they couldn't be more diametrically opposed on this. They have no control of what these other guys are doing. They're all making their own decisions. And all these guys are going to act in the best interest of themselves and their families, right? And the thing that all these guys have to be realizing right now is that this is a, it's a really tricky position to be in. Uh, it's kind of a game of chicken right now because they're trying to figure out, you have to try and figure out what everyone else is going to do, but what other people do has a direct impact on what they're going to do. So for example, if Xander goes now, he's going to make way more money than if he's the last guy to go. Like you do realize, right, that they're not going to drop the bag 
on like the 25th guy to go. So if Xander was the first to go, for example, and I'm just using Xander as an example, he would have gotten a ton. But if Xander is the last of the big names to go, he's probably going to get screwed because now who has the leverage in that scenario, right? Like DJ and Phil were smart in the sense that at least they sold out for their market high, right? They had the leverage in that scenario. Liv needed them more than they needed Liv at the time, right? That's why DJ was so important. And it's very possible that we are approaching, rapidly approaching a situation where a player like Xander might need Liv more than Liv needs Xander, Honestly, we might already be there, to be perfectly honest. So if somebody like Xander or Cantlay or any of those guys that are really good players but not generational talents, to me, the only responsible thing to say would be, look, I'm here right now. I don't know how this is going to play out, but I'm here right now. I want to be on the PGA Tour. But like if a giant golf media company with a bottomless pit of cash entered onto the scene and they started handing out huge sums of money to different golf podcasts and golf writers. And I had no idea what all my other peers were going to do. And I had no idea if this thing had staying power. Um, and I got asked like, what would be the upside in me taking a hard stance when I have zero idea how any of this stuff is going to play out? I'd be like, look, this is crazy. It's weird. It's a lot of money. I'm kind of worried it's going to take over. I'm really happy with where I'm at, but I have no idea how this is going to play out. Next question. So like I said, I know definitively as a fact that Xander wants to stay on the PGA Tour. But I think people are really underestimating the fact that the players at this stage of the game are really starting to realize this has way more steam than they originally thought. And it's a really tricky position to be in because even if you don't want to go to live, you also have to realize that maybe a lot of other people are going to end up going to live and you could get into a situation where you need live more than live needs you, and then, then the money might run out. And the other thing that I've been thinking about a ton is with this. Okay, so what should the PGA Tour do in that scenario? Right, like what what can they do? Or again, is it already too late? And my initial thought on this was, the PGA Tour should just wave the white flag. That was kind of the that was kind of my first thought on this. And you know, I've talked to a lot of people who are more connected on this than I am, and they're like, "Dude, that's not remotely an option." I said, "Why?" And they're like, "Well, you really think you're really going to take Greg Norman's word that they want to work side by side with the PGA Tour? Really? First year they have events going up against the John Deere and the Canadian Open. Just wait. Just wait. If this thing continues to build momentum, you give them an inch, 
they'll take a mile. Next year, it's 14 events, and just wait. If they feel like they're in a position to do a knockdown blow, and they have enough momentum, and they continue to get players, just wait. They will be happy to go up against a memorial or a bay hill. They aren't there yet, but on second thought of this, it feels a little naive for me to put faith in the idea that Liv really wants to peacefully coexist because that's what Norman said in the early stages before they got any players and before he had zero momentum. What the fuck else is he going to say? He had zero leverage at that point. Now he gets a couple big names and he's tweeting at the PGA Tour, how you like them apples? I mean, come on. You want to say Monaghan started this war, I would wager any amount of money to you that they thought a lot about this and said, yeah, there's no fucking way I'm going to trust anything that a Saudi-backed golf league backed by Greg fucking Norman says to me. We have to go on the defense. These guys are lunatics. They're disruptors. They're capable of anything. So why would we ever be naive enough to think that working together with them was ever on the table? And when that was explained to me, I said, okay, that's a, that kind of makes sense. I get what you're saying now. To me, it, it now feels like there's almost actually more of a risk to think that working together with them was ever on the table. And listen, I do not think that the PGA Tour has come across as particularly well-prepared in all of this. I think their strategy has been far from sound. It feels way more reactive and we're kind of making it up as we go than it does we've been planning this for years, which they probably should have been. But listen, I think they probably fell into the same trap that pretty much everyone covering the sport did, which is, oh, this thing has no legs. Remember at Riviera when everyone said it was dead? That was just a few months ago when people were sticking a fork in it. So, yeah, the PGA Tour has made a ton of mistakes in how they could have handled this. But listen, I mean, the, oh, look how they found all this money stuff, right? No, that's really not what ended up happening here, right? Like, the PGA Tour got fucking decimated during COVID. Their reserves were in the 300, 400 million territory, which is pretty normal for a corporation of that side. That number dropped closer to the 200 million territory, which, by the way, again, that's like a very normal amount of money to have in your reserve fund for a large corporation. 99% of the large corporations that are the size of the PGA Tour have either larger reserve funds or similar in size to that, just in case, I don't know, a global pandemic happens or Saudi Arabia tries to buy golf. So for all the people saying, oh, isn't it convenient how the tour just found all this money laying around? No, you really don't. It's not like they're sitting there hoarding cash. 
In terms of percentage of revenue that the PGA Tour members make, it's a lot more than other leagues. They were always going to make these changes and increase the purses. You do realize that, right? There was a bunch more money coming in once the new TV contracts came in, and they were always going to have to wait till the new TV contract kicked in. So yeah, when the Saudi Arabian government tries to buy the sport of golf, they had to bet on themselves and expedite all of these changes, which by the way, they're taking a pretty big risk betting on themselves because they don't have any sponsorships for any of these events lined up. But again, they didn't really have any choice. So while it looks like they're scrambling and they are scrambling, yeah, in a perfect world, would some of these changes just about the wholesale format of the PGA Tour been implemented a decade ago? Yeah, of course. But let's not act like they really had the option to increase the purses like this and make all these changes in reaction to live six, seven years ago because they didn't. And JT talked about this in his interview. Like the numbers Phil was throwing around, especially with the meteorite stuff, he's in Looney Tunes world. I don't get the, oh, Phil was right all wrong. He was not. The idea that the PGA Tour (laughs) is illegally withholding money from its players and they've just got billions of dollars hidden under the sofa. Like the people that are saying this, what is your sourcing on this, Phil? And that's what's been so frustrating to me. There's so many people at this point that I feel like are just shooting from the hip and having takes on business matters and bookkeeping that they have zero actual knowledge of, right? So was Phil right in the sense that a Saudi golf league could force the PGA Tour into making some changes? Kind of. But again, all of these changes, the purse increase, they were all going to happen anyway. JT was like, yeah, that's been in the works for years. They just got decimated by COVID and like a responsible organization had to wait until the TV contract money kicked in. So did Liv expedite the process and make them have to do it on a sooner timeline? Yeah, of course. But the idea that the PGA Tour is illegally hoarding cash from their players and Phil is this giant agent of change and oh, look how good competition is for consumers. It's like, what are you talking about? This isn't competition. That is the dumbest thing I've heard too. Competition would be like if a new restaurant opened up in town with better food and better pricing. And then that forced other restaurants to have better pricing and better food. That would be an example of where competition is better for consumers. This is more like if a foreign monarchy attempted to buy the entire town's food supply, serve it in a restaurant where all the servers were in clown costumes and they had a really weird menu that always changed and no one really understood it and none of the other restaurants could compete because they didn't have enough money. This isn't competition. I don't understand how people can't wrap their heads around this. And I've heard people say, oh, I want both leagues to succeed. This could be good for golf long-term. What? What? There's no way 
that your takeaway from this can be that this is objectively good for golf. There's no way. I don't buy it. Just like what happened to IndyCar and boxing to a certain extent. They killed it. And I don't know how a lot of this stuff isn't registering with people. It's not competition. The PGA Tour is in an arms race with the Saudi Public Investment Fund, which, spoiler alert, they're never going to be able to fucking win. That's why the Live has such a better product. Look how many golf shots they are showing. Like, you do realize, right, that the only fucking reason why you are watching more golf shots on Liv's YouTube stream is because they don't have a fucking TV contract or any sponsorships. That's the thing. It's not a fair fight. The PGA Tour has to have a responsible business plan to survive, which means TV contracts, relationships with networks that are going to show commercials, the CEO of Travelers, Coming, on, coming in on Sunday on the back nine to talk to Jim Nance in the booth. You do realize that all of those things have to happen and are essential for the PGA Tour's livelihood for the PGA Tour and their business model to survive and make money and pay their players. Whereas with Liv, they don't have to play by any of the same rules. So that's why I don't understand. Oh my God, this is so much better. We're seeing so many golf shots. Okay, let's see what happens if Liv gets a TV contract, right? And some sponsorships. Oh wait, most sponsors don't want to be aligned with Liv so they can do whatever the fuck they want. The PGA Tour does not have that luxury. So you can't compare the two, right? Liv's business model is, Let's light money on fire until we get bored. So yeah, not having commercials, not having sponsorships, that is a luxury that you get when you are funded by a bottomless pit of cash and you do not need any semblance of a business plan to survive. There's no way for the tour to compete with that. None. So all they've got is the legacy card and you know the tradition card. Is that enough? Maybe. I don't think so. And the one thing I'm trying to figure out for myself personally is do I really need to cover the golf side of this? Does the golf side of this matter at all? Where it stands now for me, uh, I'm recording this on Saturday night. I don't know what's going on in Portland. Uh, but the answer is an easy, easy no. I wish it wasn't this way, but I do realize that the vast majority of people that listen to my podcast every week are doing it for the pecs. That's generally what most people care about. I realized that big time last week when I couldn't do the Rick article and I had all these people say, where are the pecs? It's like, dude, Fuck, man. The picks are like a tiny part of that article. I'm way more proud of the other stuff. Um, but that's the reality is that, you know, most people listen to me because I have a good proven track record with my picks. And even if my picks are wrong, I generally give out pretty good, in my opinion, at least hopefully, um, actionable information that 
people can use to make money betting or playing DFS. And the reason why I've had success with that is because I'm pretty good at interpreting data and I have a ton of data on the PGA Tour and the players who compete on the PGA Tour. And I say this humbly, but I really do believe that I have a real edge, a small one, but a real edge betting and playing DraftKings on the PGA Tour. And I have the track record to back it up. I'm not really a degenerate gambler. Like I'm not going to bet on something unless I think I have an edge. And I have no idea yet how to find an edge with the Live Tour because I don't understand what anyone is doing there or what anyone's motivation is after they just saw their bank account increase times 10. It's an exhibition. It's the same thing as betting on the match. And yeah, you can say you have an edge in an exhibition, but do you really have an edge? It's not competitive. The main selling point for this tour is that you get to play less golf. That is how it's being marketed, not just by the tour, but by its players who you know they've been getting PR training. They are actually telling these guys, yeah, we want you to sell this as you get to play less golf. That's how we're going to get more players. And everyone that has gone to live is either at a point in their career where they can no longer compete at the highest level or they've come to a place in their career where they said, you know what? Outside of four weeks a year, maybe if we're allowed to play in those, I don't really want to compete anymore. Which I don't blame any of them for doing that, by the way. But I have zero interest in betting on that. None. I get it. Like if you just love betting on anything, it's another thing to bet on for sure. But if I'm in the business of really genuinely trying to give out good information on this podcast, which I really do care about, I think the only reason why I've had success with this podcast um, is because I am able to, you know, genuinely give find an edge, right? I'm genuinely able to provide an edge. um, And I don't know how to do that in something that isn't competitive. I'd honestly rather gamble on the member guest at my club because at least I have a better understanding of why people are there. With Liv, I don't even really understand the format. I think the format might change. I don't get what anyone is doing there or the state of anyone's game or their mindset. I mean, Carl Schwartzel makes 4 million bucks one week and then comes out the next and shoots 77. I mean, it's not interesting or appealing for me to bet on. So unless my partners directly tell me or pay me to cover live and put out live picks or my listeners start specifically asking for me to cover live and it, it gets to the point where I actually stand to lose listeners or lose money by not covering live. I'm going to stick with what I'm good at. And that's the PGA tour, even if it's John Deere week. Um, So from a betting and DraftKings perspective, 
you know, maybe if they implement strokes gained at some point. But until then, I am all the way, all the way out on betting this thing and covering it on my podcast from that perspective. I just don't, I'm not interested. And as a fan, that's one thing, right? Like covering it on the pod as a better um, and a DraftKings player, that's one thing. Now, as a fan and an obsessive watcher of golf, personally, I think it's a total farce. I mean, I'm going to be honest. I think the team thing sucks. I think some people like the team thing, and I respect that. I understand that. Like I said, this is just my opinion. But for me, like I'm trying to figure out who actually who actually asked for this. I because I personally, I love that golf is an individual sport. Again, I mean, this is just my opinion. Maybe tons of people are sitting here saying for years, man, wouldn't it be great if golf had teams? You know, maybe those people exist. I know I've heard some people say that they like the team stuff. I'm just speaking from my own personal opinion. But to me, like golf already has a team event. It's called the Ryder Cup and it's fucking awesome. And the reason why the Ryder Cup is so fucking awesome is because we have competitive starvation with it. The fact that it's once every two years is perfect because there's a huge buildup and there's nothing else on the golf calendar like it. So once you get there, it feels different. It feels special. And you can see that with the players. And oh, by the way, the players are there to compete. They're not there because they got a bunch of money. And now they get to go spend more time with their family. I don't think the Ryder Cup would be half as cool if something like that happened all the time or even a couple times a year. I think you need that competitive starvation to create anticipation. And I don't understand what Liv is going for here. It seems like they scrapped the draft thing after one week and they're going to have the same teams all next year. Um, And maybe the teams are changing now. It's... It's a farce. And look, I get it. It's a startup. Most startups are making it up as I go. And I bet you they're going to improve on things and figure things out. But right now, for me personally, I'm only speaking for myself here. I know some people like this. For me personally, as a golf consumer, I am all the way out. It is, it's just not for me. It's not my bag. It's, I understand this is the type of golf that some people want. And I think there are certain things that are appealing about it for certain fans. I can only speak for my own personal opinion is specifically not for me. It is capital N not for me. Like there are a lot of reasons why I watch golf and I watch sports. Live does not check any of those boxes for me. And again, it's just my opinion. I think people watch golf for a ton of different reasons. It's not my jam personally. It's not compelling to me. And you can call me a grumpy old architecture guy, but I think the shotgun start is embarrassing to competition. It's not real golf to me. A golf course was designed to tell a story and everyone's starting on different holes 
completely discredits everything the architect was trying to accomplish in the technique and the style of how they routed a golf course, which is a skill, by the way, and something to be celebrated. And I guess the reason why they want to do a shotgun start is to avoid players getting boned by the weather. I mean, really? What a bunch of fucking babies. It's a fucking outdoor sport. I love that we get random weather sometimes. There is volatility involved in every single sport. Think about how much there is in basketball and football with the human error of referees. And now we're going to complain because you get a little more fucking win some weeks? It's such an embarrassment. It is such an embarrassment to me. I mean, seriously. And again, it's just my opinion. But I love golf being on all day. I love the big window. I know that's another reason why they're doing the shotgun start, not just for the equitable tee times, but to get the golf all in in the short little window. Maybe I'm in the minority here. I love how when you turn on the Masters at 8 a.m. and you see the guys who are closer to the bottom of the leaderboard play the holes first, and then when it's time for the leaders, you kind of know how the golf course is playing that day and you get to kind of see the greens firm up as the day goes on and you know all the pin positions and you can say when the leaders are coming through, like you remember watching, oh, this guy went long right. He was dead on this hole. So now the leader is coming through and you actually have like context on how the hole and the course is playing. And the tension kind of builds throughout the day. And you have guys making runs on one side of the golf course right as the leaders are teeing off. And you've got a guy in the clubhouse who posted a number. And now you get to see, like, holy shit, is everyone going to come back to this guy? Like, what's going to happen? And listen, I'm sorry. Call me a traditionalist, whatever. That's the type of golf I'm interested in watching. And to be honest, again, just my opinion— I think a 156-man field, 72-hole stroke play event is fucking great. I love it. I think that 72-hole stroke play, more often than not, is the best test of golf and the best way to determine a champion. And nearly every single time, 72 holes of stroke play leaves us with close to or the most deserving champion. The best golfer wins. And again, maybe this is an unpopular opinion, But I fucking love the concept of a cut. I think having a cut is one of the greatest things about professional golf. I really do. I really do believe this. I fucking love a cut. The most exciting time of the tournament after Sunday afternoon, obviously, is Friday afternoon. And I think it's been a massive mess from the PGA Tour to not lean into that more and have like a cut cam. I mean, that one's a fucking layup. Um, but I I guess I'm in the minority. Like, I really like the general format of golf. That's not me being like a PGA Tour dick rider or saying there's not problems with the PGA Tour. I'm just talking about like the general format of 72-hole stroke play with bigger fields and a cut. I don't... Do people like really... I guess there are people that really want that to change. I don't know. I really like it. Um, and I get it. I think, I guess there are more people that are interested in a shotgun start and 54 holes. Um, but just speaking, honestly, it's not for me. 
Um, and I don't care to bet on it. I don't care to watch it. Nothing about it is compelling to me. There are a lot of reasons why I watch golf. Lyft doesn't check any of those boxes for me personally. And I don't know if that's going to change anytime soon. I've gotten asked the question, if Xander goes to live, would that make you watch live? And honestly, the answer is probably no. If Xander went to live, I would definitely be bummed, but I wouldn't hate him for it. I wouldn't kill him for it. I would get it. And I would still probably root for him at the majors. Uh, but would I track him every week on the live tour the way I do now? No, I wouldn't. Because outside of four tournaments a year, he's not playing competitive golf anymore. I'd rather watch Sahith compete. That's far more compelling to me than watching Xander in an exhibition. And I think the only thing that would maybe make me watch Liv is if they went to some interesting golf courses, but I don't foresee that happening. They're never going to Seminole. Just ask Jimmy Dunn. Um, so it's not for me. I understand for some people, maybe this is exactly what some people, what some golf fans were looking for. And maybe it's a huge improvement and it's everything that they want golf to be. And I understand that and respect that for me personally. It's everything I don't want golf to be not interesting golf courses, teams, shotgun starts, but that's just me. Um, and I'm not looking down on anyone that really loves it because clearly there is a market for it, right? Like there are people that really are more interested in this style of golf. Um, so it's just my opinion and I'm weird. I understand I'm probably in the minority here that doesn't want to see a lot of these changes. Like for the record, I'd rather watch a Curtis cup at Marion or the NCAAs at Pasatiempo or a Walker cup at Seminole or national than 95% of the tournaments on the PGA tour. So the only point I'm trying to make with this is people watch golf for different reasons and for me personally, live, live ain't my jam. It doesn't check any boxes for me as a consumer in terms of what I care about personally. Um, and again, I guess I, I guess this is a hot take because it seems like there's so much outrage over a, a lot of stuff with the tour. Um, I don't really think the general format of competitive golf is broken or that broken. I think there's some changes that happen, but like back to back to the cut thing for a second. I totally get the argument of from the player side, oh, you show up for two days, spend all this money on hotels, miss the cut on the number, and it's a net loss for you. Like that sucks, but maybe that can be solved by there's a baseline salary on the PGA tour or a baseline appearance fee. I guess. I mean, to me, that kind of just feels like a handout. And I don't know, forgive me, what I like about the PGA Tour and all fucking sports is that it's really competitive. There's not supposed to be a lot of people that are competing at the highest level. <laughs> Making the cut matters. You have to earn it. Um, and I also, you know, I get the whole FedEx Cup isn't fair because it forces guys to play who are hurt and you have to play all these tournaments to have a good standing on the FedEx Cup and 
if an NBA or NFL player gets hurt, they still get paid. But in golf, if you get hurt, you don't get paid and you're really behind the eight ball. I understand all that. Um, I think that's also a very easy problem to solve. If you want to create a baseline salary where players get paid as members of the PGA Tour or there's a clause in their contract where if they get hurt, and you can also create way more leniency with major medical exemptions, which they've already started to do and are already pretty lenient. And suddenly it creates a situation where even the guys like Brooks and Reed, who are complaining about how they have to play through injuries, which I think is kind of bullshit, to be honest with you. Um, you can easily create a situation where they don't need to first force the issue if they're hurt. Even though that stance ranks pretty damn hollow for me. Honestly, the I want to spend more time with my family thing that they've really started to lean into, again, it's like becoming just as bad as the grow the game stuff. Dude, you do realize you are going to have to travel more with Liv than what your current schedule was with the PGA Tour going from Arizona to San Diego, right? Like you do understand that, right? Kepka never fucking plays. He plays when he wants. He actually is going to have way less freedom on Liv, which I'm not sure he fully understands yet, but he will. And I'm not even factoring in all the MBS birthday parties and corporate outings that he's going to have to attend. There's a fucking catch with all of this. And I'm not sure the players understand that yet. But they will. These guys fucking own you now. And the only guy that I think has realized this and had that oh shit moment, honestly, is actually Phil. To me, when I watched that press conference that he gave at the U.S. Open, um, and I just finished the Phil book too, which, by the way, was excellent. Um, and I really like Phil. I, I The book was fast. I think he's a polarizing figure. I think there are a lot of things about about him that I think are pretty electrifying some stuff I don't like about him but overall I I really enjoy his presence in the game and I've always rooted for him <sighs> to me at the U.S. Open that was like the most jarring press conference of all of them and I don't know how you read that I've talked to a couple other people about this that agree with me, but I don't know how you read that any other way than that is the look of a man coming to terms in real time with the realization that he has made a massive mistake. And people are going to say that, oh, he's massive mistake. What are you talking about? He's wiping his ass with $100 bills. Okay, let's talk about the money for a second. My stance on this has always been uh, and when I talked about this the first time on the podcast with Tom Jacobs, I had, well, it was really only one person say, I can't believe you're not being harder on the players for taking the blood money. And my thing with this has always been, look, it would be easy for me to sit here and do the thing that many people in golf media or, or anyone are doing by saying, hey, I would never take the money. How could they? But the reality of the situation for me personally, I've never ever been in a situation remotely comparable to that where I've been offered that much money to work way less. I have no context for that, right? I've never been offered money 
that would create generational wealth for my family. So I'm, I can't sit here and say and kill any of these guys for taking the money, even the dudes like Taylor Gooch, where it's a little more like, huh? Because I've just never been in a position even remotely close to that. So I don't feel comfortable judging other people because I, I, I have no context for it. I, I don't even understand what that conversation looks like. I can't even put myself in those shoes of somebody offering me that much. I've never been close to that. I don't have any comp for it in my own life, really. So I, I can't speak on it or really make judgments um, on those people's decisions. Again, because I cannot even remotely relate to the position that they're in. And frankly, honestly, if you get offered that much money, I would imagine that it's probably almost considered selfish not to have a conversation with your family about it. Because remember, these guys aren't just making decisions for themselves. They're making decisions for everyone in their orbit. And while in a perfect world, we would love all professional golfers and people in general to make decisions based on morals, the reality is that 99% of people are really just going to make decisions in the best interest of themselves and their families. And that doesn't just apply to live, it applies to everything in life. So I do not blame or think less of a player for making that decision. That is saying like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to get completely overpaid to work less and set up my family with generational wealth for years to come. That makes complete sense to me. But I was thinking a lot about the guys who didn't take the money. And I was thinking a lot about what Nick Faldo said on the broadcast last week about having purpose in life. And I thought what Nick Faldo had to say was actually really important. Um, I'm going to paraphrase here. Um, But he talks about how at a certain point, you have to feel like you've got some sort of meaning or purpose in life. You have to take pride and enjoyment in what you're doing. And again, I know people are going to do the thing. They're wiping their ass with $100 bills. And it's like, yeah, I get it. You do realize there are tons of people out there that have all the money in the world and are absolutely miserable. I'll give you an example of this. So I grew up in New York Um, I grew up around a lot of wealthy people. I went to a really, really good high school, really, really good college, um, where there's a lot of money and the path, the pathway for me and all my friends always felt like, okay, we're going to go to this boarding school and we're going to go to this college and then we're going to get this internship and then we're going to work at this investment bank and then we're going to go to this business school and then we're going to end up at this hedge fund and then we'll have this house in the Hamptons and be a member of this country club and be on the board of these organizations. And it's like the the whole path was laid out for kind of this, what, what I thought would be a perfect life um, right out in front of us. And I remember probably up until like 22, 23 years old, I thought that was exactly what I wanted. I was going to work on Wall Street. Um, 
all of us were going to work on Wall Street and I was going to have this perfect life. And the only problem with that was <laughs> when I actually got to the point where it was time to do that, I was like, oh, wait, I actually am not passionate about this type of work at all. None of this is fulfilling for me at all. And I remember right as COVID was starting and I was graduating college and I was thinking really hard about what I wanted to do next. And I had kind of figured out the way of the land with the finance stuff. And I'd interned at an agency before too. And honestly, none of it like really felt right, which was scary at the time because I, it felt, it seemed to feel right to all my other friends. Um, I don't know how to describe that feeling. I guess I'll go back to the word fulfilling, but I just didn't feel like I was going to be able to wake up every morning and find joy in that profession. And so again, I did something that felt really, really fucking scary at the time. But I said, you know what? What's the one thing that I love more than anything else? that has brought me more joy in life than anything else. It's golf. And so I applied to an internship at Golf Digest. I started a blog and I started a podcast and now it's turned into my career. And all this while, especially in the beginning when I was making zero money, and no one was listening to my podcast, and I had no momentum. This in, that entire time, while that was going on, I was watching every single one of my childhood friends make just about as much money as you can make in your early to mid-20s working in finance. And still, to this day, of my childhood, high school, college friends, I probably make less money than... I don't know, 97, 98% of those guys that work in finance. And I, I'm extremely proud of what I do and what I've accomplished. And I live very comfortably now and have everything that I could possibly want in life. But I did make a trade-off that I was consciously aware of um, that I realized by taking a different path, I'm not sure that I'm now ever going to have the wealth of some of the kids that I grew up with. I mean, maybe if I turn into Bill Simmons or something uh, like that, but chances are compared to most of, you know, the friends I have that are already working at hedge funds, I'm probably never going to have that type of wealth, which is something I have complete and total peace over. Because what I do have in my life is I wake up every single morning and I fucking jump out of bed. Because I still cannot fathom the fact that my full-time job is to write and talk about the one thing that I love more than anything else. And I, every single day, I feel genuinely fulfilled by the work that I'm doing. Whether it's the friendships and relationships that I've made with other people in the industry, the messages that I get about how the pod has meant something to them or I'm, I've helped them win all this money. I wake up every single morning 
And I couldn't be more grateful that I get to do this as a job. And to be honest with you, my salary would probably be about 10x, maybe more, what it is now if I took that other path. And I can say pretty confidently I know wouldn't be as happy. I can say that definitively. Some people, if you want to say you don't believe me, fine. Fine. Um, and by the way, I have some of those friends that will openly admit, yeah, this was a bad choice. <laughs> and they ended up quitting and doing something else. And that's not to say that, like, that's not saying working in finance is some soulless job. I think for tons of people, it's actually incredibly fulfilling. Um, and for everyone I know that decided it wasn't for them, I have other friends that are super passionate about that stuff and super good at it. And they would do that type of stuff even if the money wasn't good, right? So it's, it's, not, even, it's not even about the actual job. My point with all this is to say, for the guys that go to live, I totally get it. I totally get it. I'm not interested in the holier than thou thing or the outrage thing or doing a whole blood money thing. I get it. But I probably resonate a little bit more with the people that said no. And I believe the people that said no. And I believe the people that said that no was a really easy decision for them. I believe them. Because while there are a lot of people that will say money the money is so good, how could I ever say no? I think there are also people out there that are like, you know what? I need to wake up every morning and have purpose. And I know that I can find purpose in winning my hometown event at Riviera or sinking the winning putt at the Ryder Cup in front of thousands of people. And I know it sounds really fucking corny, but when Max Homa was like, yeah, you know, the one thing that they can't buy is my dreams. And I grew up dreaming of playing on the PGA Tour and having Tiger fucking Woods hand me a trophy at Riviera and competing on the President's Cup teams and Ryder Cup teams. And if you're able to find purpose with Liv and the money and all that stuff and, and in the format that it has, then all the power to you. That's your decision. And I hope they end up feeling fulfilled with that decision. But there are still a lot of people that are going to look at that thing and say, yeah, you know what? I get that it's a lot of money. But as somebody who dreamed of playing golf at the highest level and competing against the best player in the world, best players in the world, that 54-hole exhibition shotgun start thing, that shit ain't getting me out of bed in the morning. And I don't understand why people can't empathize and understand both sides, right? So there's no one's wrong in this scenario. And the lift, it's just turned a lot of, I feel it's brought out the worst in a lot of people in terms of the takes. I mean, you've got the super outrage, the blood money crowd that just really continue to double down. And this is a hill that they're clearly going to die on. And then the people on the right, feel like they need to defend Liv simply because they fucking hate how liberal the vast majority of the media is. So then they start 
talking themselves into rooting for Liv out of spite because the holier-than-thou crowd is so fucking annoying. (laughs) And as somebody who's pretty in the middle with all this stuff, it's just a fucking mess. And it's a microcosm for how pretty much every single polarizing issue in America gets handled these days in terms of the public reaction and the outrage on both sides and how quickly it turns into a me versus you thing. And everyone on this side is wrong and everyone on that side is right. And it's like, dude, the reality of the situation is there's some good points on both sides. Some of the whataboutism stuff is a little apples to oranges in terms of what this is getting compared to. And there's also some legitimate hypocrisy in the people that are incredibly outraged about this. Both those things can be true. And guess what? I have friends on both sides, just like I have friends, many actually, who voted for Trump and a ton of friends who are pretty damn liberal too. Got to be honest. Doesn't really change the way I feel about you, how you feel about this, what side you are on. I think everyone's entitled to their own opinion with this. I think JT said it best, right? It's like, look, I'm bummed, but it's not going to change the way I feel about you. It doesn't change the way I feel about you if you really want Lip to succeed. I don't really get it. It's not my stance. I don't really care. I'm not going to judge you for it. All this is just my opinion. And I'm telling you on this political stuff, it's just going to get worse. It will. Just wait. Just wait till they have that first event at the Trump course. There's already protesters at the Portland event. That number is going to multiply at the Trump Bedminster event. Mark my words on that. And the one thing that I've heard no one mention at all is that MBS's best friend is literally Jared Kushner. Kushner was the reason why MBS became a close ally during the Trump administration. And as soon as Kushner left the White House, guess what MBS did? MBS pumped a $2 billion investment into Affinity Partners, which is Kushner's private equity firm. Why did MBS do this? Well, there are a couple reasons. (laughs) Part of it as a thank you, because Kushner played a huge role in the Trump administration defending MBS after the Jamal Khashoggi incident and a lot of other stuff. And oh, by the way, guess who's the betting favorite to be our next president? It's Donald Trump. So none of this is going away. It's just going to get murkier and divide more people because people fucking hate Trump. And you are a fool if you do not see that Trump has his hands all over this. Oh, and by the way, he also is the odds-on favorite to be the next president. So if you think it's a divisive topic, just wait. It's going to get even more polarizing, and more people are going to be angrier, and they're going to go even more so to different sides. I guarantee it. But honestly, unless some crazy news happens, that was all I had to say. I'm I think I'm good on live content for a while. You know, I'll fulfill my obligations to talk about it with Rick on the show, but I've been stewing on a lot of that stuff for a while and I said it and now my, I'm good. (laughs) I just, I don't care. Um, I had some points I wanted to say, some things that I was seeing that I was frustrated about, about, you know, understanding what's going on with some of the TV coverage and the contracts and the money 
with the PGA tour and, um, kind of talk about why I don't really have interest in betting on it or covering it, but I said it and I'm very glad that I did. Um, but I'm ready to get back to some, uh, regularly scheduled program. So thanks for listening to my rant on that. We're already up against an hour. I did not expect that to go an hour. Um, I expected that to go 30 minutes or so, but I'm going to do, we'll do a little bit on the Genesis, not much. Um, it's an awesome, awesome, awesome field. 19 of the top 20 players in the field. It's at the Renaissance club. Par 71, 7,293 yards. The greens are fescue-based, typically on the slower side, like most courses in Scotland. It was designed in 2008 by Tom Doak, so it's a newer course. Um, and I'll bas- basically give like the five-minute kind of recap what I think you need to know on this course. Because to be honest with you, I've been doing a bunch, a bunch of traveling. I do have a ton of stuff. Like I had a full podcast worth of stuff on, on this. I just, I, I'm not going to do a two hour podcast, um, or break this into two. Um, but quick plug to my Rick article. You can find a lot more details of my thoughts on, uh, the Renaissance club in the article that will be posted to Rick run good on Monday morning. But to me, I think this course is pretty easy. Uh, I mean, we had Wiesberger win in 2019 at 22 under. Rye win in 2020 at 11 under. Minwoo Lee win last year at 18 under. All these, by the way, were playoffs. So this course has kind of a a history of having these uh, these high-end finishes. But you'll notice the Rye year was 11 under par. And uh, the other years were 18-22 under par. So the Rye year, um, we got a lot more wins. And the Minwoo Lee and the Weisberger year, um, it was pretty calm conditions. And I think in pretty calm conditions, kind of like most Lynx courses, like kind of like what we saw at you know the Open Championship a little bit last year, if we don't get wins, PGA Tour pros are going to kind of bury this course. They're going to make a lot of birdies. And I was looking at, like, running through the stats real quick. Like, the top five guys last year, 58th, 56th, 80th, 94th, and 5th off the tee. Fitzpatrick made the playoff last year losing strokes off the tee. Poulter finished 4th losing strokes off the tee. In terms of driving accuracy last year, the top five guys finished 102nd, 113th, 92nd, 11th, and 73rd. So of the three guys that made the playoff at this tournament last year, none of them finished inside the top 90 in driving accuracy. So I, you know, is this a bomb and gouge course? Well, let's look at distance. 26, 34, 63rd, 105th, and 3rd. So you scroll down the leaderboard and you compare distance with accuracy on this guy, on these guys. And it's like, well, Fitzpatrick, he had above average distance even at that time. Dietrich, Min Wu, Herbert, Rom, JT, Veerman, Xander, Scheffler, all those guys are averaging over 300 yards off the tee and are plenty long. So, of course, you're going to have your anomalies like Poulter that can just 
put the lights out, but I do think that longer hitters um, are going to have a bit of an edge here. And I, I, I think you can kind of really bomb and gouge this course a little bit if we don't get win. Again, we're going to want to check back later in the week with, uh, with how the weather looks on, on the win front. I'll talk about that you know, as the week goes on and kind of culminate that with my Wednesday article. Um, but the big thing that kind of stood out to me is like when I was running through this course and running through the hole by holes and kind of watching what happened last year and looking at the scores that happened last year and looking at the guys that play here played well here last year and how those guys played well is kind of like, man, I think it's all going to depend on wind. Um, and I haven't looked at weather yet. I'm just two out of the three years. We haven't gotten a ton of wind. Um, if we do get more wins it'll be a little bit harder but um to me it looks like you kind of want to be identifying guys that hit the ball a long way are good par five scorers it's a course with it's pretty long you know it's, it's a course with four par fives and five par threes um and guys who make a lot of birdies and you know can actually score in easier scoring conditions i think and it's such a good feel too so like <laughs> In terms of motivation, you know, it's the week before the major and, you know, I hear a lot like it's a tune up for the guys. I don't know, man. In the three tournaments the week before major, we've had some really elite players either winning or contending. Most recently with Rory winning at eight to one the week before the U.S. Open. Spieth, JT and Xander all contended the week before the PGA championship. Xander easily could have missed that cut and headed to Southern Hills early. And he made like eight birdies in his last five holes just to stay the weekend. So I think the idea that this is just a tune-up for the open championship for the world's best players, I think that's a bit of a fallacy. I mean, Rom, JT, Fitzpatrick all contended here last year, the week before the open. So I don't really buy a ton into the tune-up thing. Um, and I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if we get a pretty star-studded leaderboard. Um, so I'll put a lot of stuff together in the model. Driving distance, kind of iron play, a lot of pop bunkers at this course too. So I looked a little bit at sand saves. I looked at putting on slower greens, slower than average greens, because these greens are massive and they're fine fescue based, so they're a little bit slower on the stamp and three putt avoidance because we got these giant, giant greens. Birdies are better gained, par five scoring. I looked at some of the easier open championship venues too, um, like Royal St. George's that didn't have win last year. I looked at, I think it's a little bit of a stretch to look at some of the PGA Tour courses in. Uh, in relation to, you know, a real lengths course. But the one PGA Tour course that I thought, okay, maybe there's something there was Memorial Park just because it's a doke. And doke tends to have similar tricks and nuances with his green complexes at all of his designs. So anyway, I put all that stuff together in a model. Number one, Justin Thomas. Number two, Cameron Smith. Number three, Scotty Scheffler. Number four, Xander Shoffley. Number five, John Rahm. Number six, Sam Burns. Number seven, Patrick Cantlay. Number eight, Matt Fitzpatrick. Number nine, Will Zalatoris. Ten, Harold Varner. No surprises this far, right? I guess Varner is kind of the one guy that doesn't fit, but pretty chalk at the top. 
um, Homa, Spieth, Mito, Hatton, Hovland, Neiman, Hideki, Alex Noren, Corey Connors, Cameron Young. To be honest with you, the the big names that stood out to me the most were actually Rom and Justin Thomas. <laughs> um, Baroff will love to hear that. He's my guest on the show this week. Um, but yeah, I, I think this is a good spot for Rom. I, I like him at St. Andrews, too. And um, Justin Thomas has played this event twice. He's gone eighth and ninth. And those are kind of the guys that stood out to me the most at the top. Now, in the mid-tier, I kind of like Homa. A lot of these guys, you're going to have to make a decision because a lot of these guys don't have a real, a lot of real experience on Lynx golf courses, right? So you're going to get some guys like Cameron Young and uh, Mito who have never really had a ton of experience on Lynx golf courses or playing overseas, but they're coming in in better form than maybe someone like a Fleetwood or a Hatton who do have a really good track record uh, on Lynx golf courses, but their form is kind of slipping a little bit. Fleetwood and Hatton have kind of simmered down a little bit, right? So you're going to have to make a judgment call on, like, oh, are these guys Lynx guys? Do they have any experience on Lynx versus who's playing the best golf right now? And how, can that skill set be translated overseas to Lynx golf? And I would say the short answer for me is probably yes, just because I think that. First of all, this is kind of more of a faux links course, especially if we don't get wins. I think it's kind of more of a wide open, easier golf course that a lot of these guys, even if they've never played overseas, will be able to navigate pretty well. Um, so we'll have to see. Check back in later in the week. Uh, I will be back on this podcast feed on uh, probably Tuesday morning. That'll drop. Uh, for picture, I'll have way more of my uh, my thoughts fleshed out in that one. And uh, scramble with Rick Tuesdays, Tuesday and Friday. Um, Rick article on uh, on Monday, breaking down the course way more in depth. Uh, final DFS thoughts are back on Wednesday as well. Odds checker article on Monday too, and. I think that will do it for me. Um, Have a great rest of the weekend. Be safe. Happy 4th of July. And we'll see you next time. Cheers.